Losing the Plot, Chapter 17 The creature, whatever it was, continued to scratch vigorously at the wooden door. So it had claws, and big ones by the sound of it. It also had a large and insistent snout that snuffled and sniffed its way along the unnervingly large gap at the bottom of the door. I had little doubt that the creature had locked onto my scent and was keen to acquaint itself more intimately with my fleshy bits. It was fortunate, therefore, that I had in my possession a bazooka. I could definitely do a lot of damage with a bazooka. I could certainly punch a large hole through both the wooden door and the creature's head with it. It is a rare and beautiful thing to be able to pick up cool weaponry like this in a dream. Usually the bastards at Dream Central would, at a time like this, equip me with something hopeless, like a crossbow that only fires kittens, or a laser blast or assault rifle that couldn't be charged up because it had come supplied with the wrong adapter lead. But this time... I had an impressive piece of military hardware at my disposal with a big ammo box full of rockets that were actually rockets and not kittens or fish or large tubes of emollient. I armed the bazooka with one of the rockets and aimed the weapon at the door. By this point, the creature had begun to alternate between making low, menacing growling sounds and piercing, freezing one's marrow howls. Under normal dreamscape conditions, this would have tipped me over into hardcore nightmare territory. But I had a bazooka. So, drooling creature, bring it on. But then I became aware of another sound behind the door. The sound of music. Literally, the sound of music. As written, but definitely not arranged by Rogers and Hammerstein. This instrumental version heavily featured a novel and somewhat surprising combination of glockenspiel, castanets and tuba, an arrangement that didn't quite do it for me tonally. Tempted though I was to just blast away with my rocket launcher at both the unseen creature and the unfortunate source of the hideously deformed Muzak, I made one of those foolhardy dream decisions. I put down my rocket launcher, stepped forward and opened the door. Hello, James, said Danny. Jesus H. Christ, I spluttered as I abruptly regained full consciousness. In front of me sat my nemesis, stock still and impassive. On the table before him was a fresh brew and a chocolate-covered flapjack. I wiped away some dried-up spittle from the corner of my mouth and attempted to kick-start some flagging neural pathways. Shit. How long had I been out for? I touched the half-finished cappuccino. It was stone cold. Joe Bland's show tune album was still playing, but then, as it was probably on a loop, this could easily be the fifth time that the title song to the Rodgers and Hammerstein classic had been savaged since I passed out. I thought I'd take your lead on the light refreshment front, said Danny, pointing to his flapjack and breaking into a faint smile. Uh, yes, yes, the, the the waitress recommended them, I responded vaguely. As my brain began to re-engage with the world, I found myself needing some answers. Hang on, Danny. How did you find me? I was passing and saw the MPV outside. And why were you passing? I was on the way to my digs to pick up my stuff. What, so, so you're going home? Danny took a bite out of the flapjack 
and began to chew. Yes, he replied. No, 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 no. We were so fucking close to getting this film in the can. Danny just couldn't do this to me. No, not to me. Not, not now. I looked at my phone and saw a number of missed calls from Lucy and Steve. Without Danny, production would have stopped and crew morale would have imploded. I expected that my voicemail would now be chock-a-block with distress calls from Lucy going along the lines of Get your ass back on the bridge! We've hit an iceberg and we're going down! Hmm, I definitely made a good decision with this flapjack, Danny said. Aren't you going to finish yours? Punch him, go on, punch him, make him bleed! The voice in my head was very insistent, and the idea of going through with a single surgical strike on the bridge of Danny's nose certainly appealed to my sense of justice. It would also provide a welcome release for a ton of unhealthy repressed anger issues. But I was well aware that as much as I wanted to re-sculpt Danny's profile, this wasn't the best way forward. In fact, given that I had recently invested £10,000 of joint savings into the film, it would actually come under the heading of Barking Mad Things You Should Never Do in Any Definitive Guide to Living a Sane Life. Of course, it might also be argued that pouring the entire contents of your joint savings account into such a high-risk investment as film could also be seen as an act of total lunacy. But after the debacle of Operation Happy Set, I really didn't feel like I'd been left with much choice. Our main investor, Roger, had quite understandably declined my invitation to invest further monies into the project. In fact, I had the distinct impression that after the catastrophic set visit of a week earlier, he had written off his initial investment in the same way that he had written off his soiled suit. Thankfully, Roger didn't have any connection with the other more minor investors, and so I still maintained an aura of credibility when I made contact with them on the afternoon of Roger's hasty departure. After a series of nail-biting discussions, these investors finally agreed to put a total of another £10,000 into the pot. But this still left us £10,000 short of what was required, which was how Anne and I became official supporters of the UK film industry. Not that Anne was actually aware of this. As far as she knew, we still had an unmolested nest egg to fall back on. So, as punching Danny was neither a clever or sane option, I attempted another tack. Look, Danny, if I could get Amy to apologise, would that help? It was all a bit desperate, but I had to ask the question. Danny had a long sip of his tea and dabbed each corner of his mouth with a serviette before answering. No, I don't think so, James. You had the opportunity to do the right thing, but you chose instead to come here, eat cake and fall asleep to the sound of... Danny hesitated, momentarily flummoxed by a glockenspiel's valiant but hopeless attempt to inspire the climbing of mountains and the fording of streams. Music, I said. It's a uh, show tunes album. Danny cocked an ear in the direction of the nearest speaker. Is that what that's meant to be? Rogers and Hammerstein, he said incredulously. Yes, I believe so. That's awful. There should be a law against arrangements like that. We could always lobby Parliament, Danny, see if we could get something into the statute book. Something twitched on either side of Danny's mouth. Gotcha, I thought. That was almost a smirk. 
Granted, it didn't light up the room, but it was definitely the closest I had ever managed to get Danny to smile. Now, surely here was something I could build on. I had to be quick, as the light had dwindled and Danny's frosty, impermeable veneer was rapidly re-establishing itself. Do you like musicals then, Danny? Some. I'm quite a big Lloyd Webber fan, and uh, I do like a bit of Sondheim. I motioned towards the speaker. I heard a, an appalling rendition of Phantom earlier, I said. Yes, not my favourite Lloyd Webber, I have to say. I preferred his earlier work, you know, Joseph, Evita, and of course, Superstar. Oh yes, I love Jesus Christ Superstar, I said. I've got the album here on my phone. Really? said Danny, eyeing me suspiciously. Which version have you got? It was a test, but being a genuine fan of, of the rock opera, I knew I was onto a winner here. The uh, original 1970 concept album with Ian Gillan as Jesus, I answered. Well, actually, to be precise, it's the, the um, 2012 digitally remastered version of the original album. Danny looked suitably impressed. Yes, in, in my book, Ian Gillan was always the definitive Jesus, he said. I agree, Danny. When he really hits those top notes on Gethsemane, it gets you right here, doesn't it? I said, clutching my chest. Yes, it's certainly emotive stuff, nodded Danny in agreement. Wow, Danny used the emo word. So, there did beat a heart of sorts under that cloak of darkness. Blimey, could it be that after weeks of failing to find any kind of common ground between us, we might have actually stumbled on some kind of connection? Anyway, I'd better get going, said Danny, draining the last drops of tea from his mug and standing up. Uh, hang on a minute, Danny, I said, attempting to conceal my panic. I th I thought we were, you know, uh, getting somewhere just then. What? Oh, you thought we were bonding over the mutual appreciation of a musical. Well, not just Superstar, I blathered on. I'm, like you, I, I'm also a big fan of Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's, you know, early work. Evita, for example. I mean, that's just full of cracking tunes. Sorry, James, can I just stop you there? Said Danny, interrupting. This isn't going to work, you know. What do you mean? Your attempt to talk me into continuing on this shoot. Danny offered out his hand towards me. Look, the most I can offer you right now is a handshake, James. I could feel a lump in my throat and my eyes begin to moisten. I'm sorry, Danny, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to shake your hand because I don't accept that after all we've been through together, you're actually, you know, you're really going to walk out on me. Danny looked taken aback and confused by the sudden appearance of some raw emotion. He wasn't the only one. I too felt ambushed by these brute emotions. But then, this was my baby. My passion. And I was damned if I wasn't going to fight tooth and nail for it. Look, James, let's not get too personal about this, said Danny. I'm not walking out on you. I'm walking out on the production. It is purely a professional decision. Well, it feels pretty personal to me, Danny, I said, getting to my feet. After all, I've put my all into this. What? said Danny, looking suddenly aggrieved. And you don't think that I've done the same? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, I said. I could feel my voice creeping up the scale and tears beginning to well in my eyes. This might get messy. On, on the whole, you've worked, you know, extremely hard, I continued. But you, you see, for me, this... This film is everything. Do you understand that? Danny pondered for a moment before speaking. 
Perhaps my impassioned plea had somehow managed to navigate its way through to his heart. Perhaps not. I'm sorry, what did you mean by on the whole? Came Danny's indignant response. Oh, you know, you, you know, there the have been times when you've, you know, I said, finally petering out. No, I'm afraid that I don't know, James. Please do explain. I really didn't want to explain. Not now. Not while I was struggling to keep a lid on a big vat of tears. Well, you know, I, I have noticed that sometimes you, are, you know, struggle to, you know, just just a little bit with some of the, uh, sh- shall we say, uh, you know, more um, c- collaborative aspects of the uh, of the filmmaking process there was a pause as danny translated my floundering flannel into something understandable what are you in- are you inferring that i'm not a team player james said danny if you are then i have to say that i find that assessment fairly offensive no i'm no 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 i'm i'm, I'm not really saying that danny i said attempting to drag my ass backwards out of the mire I can't believe that's what you think, said Danny, slowly shaking his head. Anyway, it really doesn't matter anymore. He took a deep breath and then held out his hand again. I'm going now, James, so do you want to end this in a civilised manner or not? A single tear had managed to make a run for it down my cheek. Attempting to compose myself, I wiped it away and cleared my throat before speaking. Bye, Danny, I said, shaking his hand. Thank you for all your work. Danny turned and walked towards the exit, and for a brief moment it looked as if my defeat would be honoured with some semblance of dignity. But before Danny could reach the exit, I was already in pursuit. Please don't go, I squealed after him. We need you, Danny. It's just another three days, that's all. No, James, it's over, said Danny, pushing his way through the lounge door and into the hotel foyer. How about another £1,000? I spluttered. Ignoring me, Danny continued through the foyer towards the hotel entrance. OK, um, uh, how about 2,000? Putting open one of the main doors, Danny paused. Do you actually have a spare two grand to give me, James? He said. Now, come on, be honest now. Not, not exactly, I thought so. Goodbye, he said, stepping through the door and out of the hotel. But I'm, I'm sure I can get hold of that amount in the next couple of weeks. Honest, uh, uh. Danny shook his head and continued to walk towards his car. It was suddenly all too much. My legs gave way and I fell to the knees on the gravel. For God's sake, Danny! I shouted through a veil of snotty tears. I I gave up Terry for you! Danny opened the car door and got in. Are you right, big cheese man? Came a voice nearby. It was Chesna, and she wasn't alone. Danny had enough, has he? Said George, matter-of-factly. Yes, it's over, I said, watching Danny's car carefully navigate its way around the tightly packed car park. Oh, well, probably for the best, said George. I don't think he's been very happy for a while, old chap. Oh, you have no heart, said Chesna, admonishing George with a tap on his arm. Your cheese man is very upset and cry. Here, let me help you up. Taking Chesna's arm, I staggered to my feet. Thank you, I said watching Danny's car pull up to the main road and pause to let a slow-moving tractor pass. Oh, did you love him long? asked Chesna. Sorry? Were you lovers for a long time? (laughs) No, sweetheart, (laughs) said George, trying desperately hard not to completely combust with laughter. I I think you've got the wrong end of the stick, uh, old girl. Oh, no, 
said Chesner, attempting to correct George. I heard James here say he gave up his other lover for him. As Danny joined the main carriageway, it was time at last to unleash my rage. You bastard! I screamed after the departing car. You fucking, fucking bastard! Something needed to be thrown. A large, well-aimed stone that would crack Danny's rear window would have been good. Alas, all I had to hand was my production folder, which managed all of two feet before disintegrating in a cloud of paper. You see, George, said Chesner, anger like that can only come from one place, and that is place of passion. In a sense, Chesner was right, of course. Chapter 18 so, when will she be out of the meeting? I'm afraid I couldn't say. But couldn't you hazard a guess? Sorry, James, I, I, I really couldn't say. Okay, Natalie, but, um, put it this way. If I phone back in an hour, do you think Patricia might then be free to take my call? Honestly, at this point, I really couldn't say. Have you tried emailing her? Yes, many times. Well, I'll certainly let her know that you called. Was there anything else I could help you with? Yes. Lara's contract. I'm I'm really sorry, James, but I, as I said earlier, that's really something you need to speak to Patricia about. But can't I speak to you about it? After all, you are Patricia's assistant. Sorry, James, I don't get involved in client contracts. So what the fuck do you get involved in, Natalie? I'm not quite sure when I slipped over to the dark side. But at a guess, it might have been around the time that our cinematographer drove off leaving me to gently sob into a scrunched up pile of production forms. To be fair, it wasn't as if I had plunged headfirst into the deep end, it was more an exploratory dipping of toes into some muddy, murky shallows. It was certainly cathartic, to speak my mind rather than let the words stew in my head. But it also left a bad-tasting residue. Perhaps the more I swore at underlings like Natalie, then the more I would get used to this taste until, eventually, it would no longer be a bitter sensation, but a sweet one. In fact, the sort of sweet taste that goes hand in hand with the obscenely successful cigar-chewing, fuck-with-me-and-you-perish-uber-producer ideal that I should have been aspiring to. At any rate, Steve was certainly impressed by my uncharacteristically non-squidgy phone manner. I can almost hear your balls growing, he commented, after Natalie had abruptly hung up on me. Yeah, not that it's probably going to do us much good, I said, flicking my cigarette butt onto the gravel and grinding it into the stones with my foot. If we don't get Lyra's contract signed, then we're screwed. I bet this agency has got a whole floor of lawyers just itching to fuck us up. Hey, we'll be fine, said Steve breezily. We're nearly there, James. Once this scene is in the can, we'll... We'll pretty much have a movie. It was true. We really were on the cusp of having a beginning, middle and an end. Something that had seemed virtually impossible a week ago when a certain pissed actor had vomited onto our main investor and an aggrieved gaffer had got to within a whisker of pulverising our cinematographer. But as I stood there chain-smoking in front of the mansion house, and watching the cast and crew prepare to shoot the final shots that would make up the plot's denouement, I was still struggling to believe that we were, indeed, nearly there. This was partly due to the fact that, within the last 48 hours, we had lost the remaining members of our camera department. 
With Terry's departure nearly a week ago now, we had somehow managed to hobble on without a dedicated lighting technician. But with the loss of Danny and soon after Sasha, our focus puller and all-round camera assistant, we had been suddenly left without anyone to set up, frame, light, move, focus or even point the camera. As the chosen medium for our creativity was film, this made our ability to continue somewhat challenging. And as the film's coffers were emptied as soon as they were filled, there wasn't even the option of bringing on board replacement crew. For a fleeting moment, I had considered throwing myself onto the mercy of Anne and her current account. But the idea of borrowing money from her when I had already, without her knowledge or consent, committed all our joint savings to the project, didn't, for obvious reasons, sit that easily with me. Sasha's exit had felt like the last of many coffin-directed nails. Despite Danny's loss, there had still been a slither of hope that Sasha could somehow fill the camera-operating void that we had been left with. After all, she seemed to know one end of the camera from the other, so perhaps she could, in the words of Steve, have a go. Sadly, Sasha didn't feel comfortable attempting this, nor, as it soon turned out, did she feel comfortable carrying on working on the film now that Danny had gone, as it was Danny that had brought her on board in the first place. But then, just when I was about to fill my veins with morphine, tie a large stone around my leg and jump headfirst into Sir Hugh's ornamental lake... Steve stepped up to the plate. Fuck it. It's just a bigger version of the one I use for my wedding videos, Steve had declared soon after Sasha's departure. As Steve struggled to find the on switch for the camera, I remained doubtful that he was going to save the day. But then, 24 hours after we'd lost the last remnants of our camera crew, we were still, miraculously, open for business as Steve morphed into a one-man camera unit. In many ways, it was the happiest I had seen Steve since the beginning of the shoot, as having thrown off the yoke of an obdurate Danny, he was succeeding in getting the shots that he wanted, without having to waste time and energy negotiating his arse off to get them. In fact, with Steve now acting as camera operator, focus puller, clapper, loader, cinematographer and director, we were able to cover the action more rapidly than ever before, with the result being that within two days we had pretty much caught up with our latest revised shooting schedule. As to the quality of Steve's shots, I had no idea what we were getting, but by this stage in the game, I was just relieved that we were getting scenes covered. The fact that Steve was physically near to collapse didn't seem like an issue either, as with only two days to go, I felt confident that a bit of mad dog determination would drag him over the line. Of course, there were times when Steve would be stumped by some camera technicality, but armed with the instruction book and various how-to videos on YouTube, he would figure it all out and get back to shooting again. In terms of crew morale, for those who were still with us, it was also a complete turnaround. For though we were still in deepest, darkest winter, with the vanquishing of the Ice Queen, Danny, and the thawing of the Ice Palace, spring had finally arrived. Like the return of migrating birds after a long, hard winter, it was Good to hear levity and bonhomie return to the set. The renewed crew optimism was aided by a palpable feeling that the end was indeed in sight. In fact, there was a discernible undercurrent of rap fever bubbling away as near-exhausted crew members tapped into ever-deeper reserves of energy as the knowledge that it would all soon be over began to sink in. But we weren't there yet. 
and by the look of the weather, there was still every chance that these final and crucial exterior scenes could be scuppered. I think it's going to snow, I said with foreboding. Nah, it's, it's going to be fine, replied Steve, struggling to attach a lens to the camera. It's forecast to snow, I continued. All right, prophet of doom, try not to jinx us. It was hard not to notice that Steve applied the same bish-bash-bosh technique to changing the lenses as he did to the directing of scenes. Uh, Do you want some help with that? I said nervously. No thanks, James. I've got it all in hand, he replied, at which point an £8,000 prime lens escaped his grip and landed in the gravel. Oh, bollocks, Steve said, snatching up the lens and giving it a cursory wipe with his coat sleeve. Do you, um, do you want me to hold the camera for you while you do that? It's all right, James, said Steve a little more firmly. I really can't do this, you know. I watched as Steve made another attempt at attaching the lens. Do you reckon that lens will need a proper clean now? I said. I've cleaned it. Well, I I wouldn't quite describe that as a proper clean, I continued. Steve gave me a brief, withering stare. Haven't you got anything else to do, James? Uh, Not right at this moment, no. Steve finally clicked the lens into place and put the camera on the car bonnet. It's going to be all right, you know, he said with a reassuring smile. What is? I said, totally transfixed by the precarious positioning of the camera on the car. Everything. Today, the weather, the camera and the lens. It's all going to be fine, replied Steve. Yeah, yeah, uh, right, I said, without conviction and fully convinced that our very expensive camera with its very expensive lens was moments away from slipping headfirst into the dirt. I wanted to believe Steve. I wanted to think that everything was going to be fine. But I just didn't dare. Somehow, I had rendered myself incapable of envisaging a successful outcome. There had been just too many scares, too many occasions when Snafu had run amok, screaming, You fools! It's all going to hell in a handcart! My mindset that morning was such that, even though the sky was the same uniform grey that it had been since we had first rocked up in Oxfordshire, it had taken on an ominous hue. It wasn't merely grey, it was heavily beaten up and bruised grey. In fact, the sort of grey that was about to fuck up our big scene by depositing four foot of snow on us. Then there was also the fact that I really didn't have anything to do at that moment. This of itself just didn't sit right. Surely something needed attending to. Surely there was a fire burning away somewhere that required extinguishing. I got so used to running around like a headless chicken on steroids that I had forgotten how to be momentarily idle. The fact that everyone was getting on with their jobs without fuss, drama or wanting to physically maim each other didn't provide any succour either. It felt far too much like we had been lured into a dangerous state of complacency and that the calm and placid sea we were currently bobbing about on was merely the lull before the mother of all shit storms. It was ridiculous, really, as this would have been an ideal time to hit the pause button and sit back and enjoy one moment on a film set. For somewhere beyond the swirling vortex of my angst-riddled brain, there did exist a small, quiet place where a small, quiet voice whispered, Look around you, James. You've nearly done it. You've nearly made a feature film. It certainly would have been nice if, at this rare moment of respite, I had been able to visit that space and listen to that edifying voice and bask in just a little bit of self-satisfied warmth. 
However, it's all going to go to rat shit. Noises in my head were so loud and insistent, even Tom's balm-like words were struggling to be heard. So, James, are you are you excited? Said Tom with a big, encouraging smile. I I will be, Tom. You know, once we've got these um car scenes shot. I said. Don't worry, it's going to be fine. Said Tom, placing his hand on my shoulder and giving it a squeeze. I mean, we're not going to be on the public highway, and uh, and George, well, he's completely sober. It was as if Tom could read my mind. Well, at least that part of my mind where I stored my most shit-scary and pressing of worries. Yes, but how do you know he is? I asked. Tom lowered his voice to a whisper and guided me a few steps away from the rest of the cast and crew. I stole his hip flask and made sure that the door to the wine cellar was locked this morning. I've also been, uh, you know, shadowing him, you know, making sure he doesn't sneak off to the kitchen and raid the cooking wine. Goodness, Tom, that's that's way beyond the call of duty, I said. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. It's, you know, it's one less thing for me to worry about. Right, well, please just just, just try and enjoy this day, James. You'll, you'll kick yourself in years to come if you don't. This is the ending. This is the denouement. This is what you've been waiting for, isn't it? Yes, it was. This was the last reel of the movie, and it was the last major scene that we had to shoot. In this scene, Bob, played by George, having been exposed by Kevin, played by Tom, as the serial murderer, jumps into his car and speeds off down the drive with Kevin in hot pursuit. Just before Bob manages to reach the main carriageway, he is forced to stop by the arrival of a police car that swings in and blocks his path. After a tussle with the boys in blue, Bob is arrested and Kevin is celebrated as the unlikely hero. As denouements go, it was hardly the usual suspects, but I was pleased that it ended this way. Tom should be the hero and George, after all the grief he had caused me, should get his comeuppance and get his arse dragged off to jail. As I watched Tom get into the pursuit car and prepare himself for the first shot, I experienced what can only be described as a faint tingle of well-being. It wasn't exactly gazing on the heavens joyous, but it did feel like the prelude to something warm and fuzzy. This state lasted for all of another ten seconds before a stressed-up Lucy descended on me, demanding nicotine. What's up? I said, passing her the cigarette carton. The police sergeant can't drive, she said. What? You mean he isn't an advanced driver? No, James, he isn't an advanced driver, or any other kind of driver. The man just can't drive. The stupid tit lied on his acting resume. A cold and familiar hand reached down into the pit of my stomach and began to tug at my innards. But why would he do that? I spluttered. Lucy gave me a look of utter incredulity. Duh! Actors, James. They lie for a living, don't they? Hang on a minute. Isn't this the guy that also put down that he was trained in anti-terrorist driving? Yep, the same. Oh, bollocks. I thought we were in for some tidy car action for the final scene. Yes, well, so does Steve. So uh, good luck on passing that bit of news on to him. Lucy took a final drag of the cigarette and immediately sparked up another one. So much for a shot of the cops screeching to a halt inches away from Bob's car after putting off a series of dramatic handbrake turns and power slides. I'll do it, said Andy, who had by this time joined us. I'm roughly the same size as the actor. I'm sure the uniform will pretty much fit. Yes, but you're not an actor, Andy, I said. Well, to be fair, 
James, I wasn't a first, second or third assistant director four weeks ago, but that's turned out okay, hasn't it? Well, yes, you you certainly have excelled in a variety of ways on this shoot, Andy, but being on screen, well, that's a, that's a totally different matter. Well, what about Carol? said Andy. She's never actually acted in a film before. Andy was right. Not only had Carol never acted in a film, she had never participated in a public performance before, except for the calling of time at the pub. I had only been made aware of this fact after I had finally relented and offered her the part of second policeman, a role that I was due to play. At which point she had gone from being very excited to being very afraid, very quickly. I had hoped that at one time she may have played the Virgin Mary or a cross-dressing wise man, or at least one end of a lowing cow. But apparently she had been so painfully shy at school that she had successfully avoided any form of public exhibition. This had made my job of justifying to Steve my decision to employ her quite tricky. Steve may well have been a bit of a bish-bash-bosh man when it came to directing, but he was very particular about the casting process. Believing that an ill-judged piece of casting, for even a minor role, could undermine a film. So, when I did finally get round to telling him that I had employed the local barmaid with zero acting experience to play the second policeman, he had immediately presumed that it was because I wanted to sleep with her. Something that I had vehemently denied, of course. I did admit, however, that as I had given Carol the role on the same day that Danny had walked out, my... Judgment may possibly have been compromised by the eight large vodka and cokes that I had downed that evening in the pub. Look, Andy, I'll, I'll run it past Steve and see what he thinks, I said. Andy looked at the police prop car with relish. Great, he said. I really fancy burning up some rubber with the blues and twos on. Uh, before you get carried away, Andy, you do realise that there's every chance that Steve's going to say no, don't you? said Lucy. The role may only have a couple of lines, but as these lines are delivered at the end of the film, Steve might not be happy risking them on a complete novice. Andy smiled. Nah, of course he's going to agree to do it, he said. After all, who else is there? Uh, Only me, I said, and I'm certainly not going to fit into that uniform. Exactly, said a triumphant Andy. You had your chance to be a movie star, James, and you gave it up for Carol. I didn't give it up for Carol. I protested sharply. You make it sound like I was being magnanimous and sacrificing something of value for her. I never wanted to play the bloody policeman in the first place. She just happened to catch me when I was having a drunken and despairing fuck it moment. That was all. Well, as long as it was a fuck it rather than a fuck her moment, said Lucy with a quick smile. What is wrong with everyone? I hissed. I am not shagging, nor do I wish to shag Carol. Right, calm down, James said Lucy. I wouldn't mind having a go on her, said Andy. Especially now she's wearing that police uniform. She looks dead sexy. The steel tips of Lucy's daggers slashed through the air. You do realise that I'm standing right here, Andy, she remonstrated. Uh, To be honest, Lucy, for a moment there, I just forgot. Well, can you try and keep your misogynistic and borderline rapey comments to yourself in future, Andy? All right. Uh, Sure said a suitably contrite Andy. I walked over to where Steve was setting up the camera on the tripod. What do you want first, the uh, good news or the bad news? I said. 
Steve immediately stopped and emitted a pained sigh. Oh, don't tell me you've gone and jinxed us, James. I had a feeling this might happen. I don't need to jinx us, Steve. I I think what the last four weeks have clearly demonstrated is that this production is a natural shit magnet. Go on then, give me the bad. Well, it turns out that the actor who was going to drive the police car can't actually drive. Steve paused for a moment to consider the implications of this news. He didn't look pleased. Hmm. Okay then, so uh, what's the sweetener? Well, Andy has volunteered to replace the actor. Fortunately, he's pretty much the same stature as the soon-to-be-released Thesp, so the uniform should fit. Has he ever acted in anything before? Uh, No idea, but uh, what other choice do we have at this late stage? Well, I suppose you could uh, pop down to the pub and see if one of Carol's work colleagues is available. Perhaps you'll find that the kitchen porter once played Hamlet at the National Theatre. I gave Steve a pained smile. I probably deserved the caustic dig, but it didn't alter the fact that we were out of options. Look, I'm sorry, Steve. I know it isn't perfect, but uh, I think we're going to have to go with Andy. All right, Steve sighed. But can you make sure that both he and Carol are word perfect with their lines? We don't have the time to dick around doing hundreds of takes. Yes, we'll do. Looking down at the viewfinder, Steve slowly panned the camera from left to right. Happy with the uh, shot? I said. Yep, I should be able to get pretty much the whole sequence in just this wide. Cool. Bish bash bosh, eh? I said. Sorry? Replied Steve with a blank stare. Twenty minutes later and I had taken up my position of senior traffic liaison officer halfway up the drive. To be fair, not many people would have been familiar with such a role, but as the novelty of wearing a high-visibility jacket while standing around in the freezing cold had worn off a long while ago, I had decided to create a new post. Okay, stand by, James, crackled Lucy's voice on the walkie-talkie. We'll be shortly going for a take. Over. Well, roger that, Lucy. This is Senior Traffic Liaison Officer standing by. Over. Do you really expect me to call you that? Over, said Lucy. It would be nice. Over. I'd rather not. Over. How about traffic wrangler assistant trainee? Interjected a sniggering Andy. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see. Twat for short. Yeah, T-W-A-T. Yeah, very, very droll, Andy, I said. Andy, could you stay off the airwaves while I coordinate this shot? Said Lucy brusquely. And James, if you want me to act as first AD on this scene, can we proceed without reference to stupid made-up titles? Uh, yeah, OK, Lucy, I said, having been firmly put back in my box. Sorry, I was just trying to uh, amuse myself. Better to concentrate upon the job in hand, hey, James? Lucy continued while making sure that the lid on my box was firmly nailed down. With Andy now lost to acting duties, Lucy had stepped in to become Steve's first assistant director, while I had been left with the altogether less glamorous task of directing traffic. Well, it wasn't so much as directing traffic as making sure that when George, closely followed by Tom, eventually came tearing down the drive, there wasn't a large delivery van banging down to meet them from the opposite direction. For once, I didn't mind attending to what must have qualified as the lowliest crew job to date, for the simple reason that I was in a prime position to prevent the mother, daughter and great-aunt of all fuck-ups from happening. I.e. 
a multiple pileup of actors and machines. How's it looking up there? Over, said Lucy on the radio. I looked down the drive towards the entrance gates. There hadn't been a vehicle since I'd taken up my position, but this was no time for complacency. For all I knew, there was a large horse box being driven by a dopey stable hand on its way now through the village towards us. All quiet on the western front. Over, I said. We're just adjusting the position of the cars and then we'll be ready to go, said Lucy. Roger, standing by. My phone rang. It was Anne. Seeing an opportunity to earn some brownie points by answering one of her calls for a change, I accepted the call. Hi, love. How are you? Wow, I'm honoured that you picked up, said Anne. Uh, where are you? Sounds like you're on a train. I am. Seeing as you're nearly done, I decided to bunk off work and come and see you at play. My pause was accompanied by the sound of a very large gong being struck. I couldn't help it. The last thing I needed was the stress of having my girlfriend on set. I see. That's, um, that's great. Great news, I managed to finally say. You don't sound too convinced, James. Well, well, I, well it's just that it's, it's a bit of a, a, a surprise, that's all. That was the point, James. It was meant to be a surprise. A nice surprise, in fact. Which, of course, it is. And yet, I'm still detecting a lack of excitement in your voice, James. Sorry, Anne, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just tired, that's all. And we've still got plenty to do today. OK, James came the voice of Lucy on the radio. We're just about ready here. How's it looking at your end? Over. Can you just hold on a mo, Anne? I said, peering down the drive towards the entrance gates. Just at that moment, a car pulled onto the drive. I clicked the button on the radio. There's a, there's a car coming. What's its ETA? Over, replied Lucy. Well, it's just pulled into the drive, Lucy, and it seems to be taking it slowly. So uh, a couple of minutes before it gets to you then, said Lucy. Yes, I I guess. I put the radio back in its holster and raised my phone to my ear. I hoped that Anne had lost interest and hung up. Are you are you still there, Anne? I said. Yes, where else do you think I'd be? Came Anne's peeved reply. Oh, just checking. So that's Lucy then? Uh, yes. She sounds very efficient, James. Yep, yeah, she's uh, pretty hot on efficiency. So <laughs> she's pretty hot, huh? No, no, you know what I mean. Oh, I, I meant, I protested. Hey, James, keep your hair on. God, you're so damn serious about everything these days. Look, and I'm going to have to go now. OK, now my train gets in at 12. Can you pick me up? Uh, sorry, Anne, I, I, I can't. Well, can't you send one of your minions? Again, sorry, honey. Everyone's tied up here. It's, it's a big shoot day today. Right, well, I suppose I'll have to get a cab then. Bloody brilliant. James, are we good to go? Came the more distant voice of Lucy. Oh, just one other thing, began Anne. Sorry, sorry, Anne, I said, determined to curtail our conversation. You know, I really have to go now. Well, um, we've been robbed, said Anne. What? I said, reading from the news. Lucy's voice was becoming more insistent. James, please confirm, are we good to go? Over. Look. You'd probably better attend to Lucy, said Anne with a sneer. I grabbed the radio. Lucy, look, will you, will you bear with me just one second? Anne, what, Anne, what do you mean we've been robbed? Did someone, did someone break into the apartment? Oh, no, it's nothing like that, thankfully. I wasn't going to mention it because I thought you'd freak out. 
Well, yes, I am kind of freaking out, Anne. What's happened? Well, our savings account has been emptied. It looks like someone hacked your security details and made off with a lot. All 10,000. Jesus, I said, thankful that Anne couldn't see me erupt into a rabid beacon of guilt and panic. Please don't worry about it, James. I know what you're like and it's all in hand. What do you mean it's all in hand? Well, as soon as I discovered what had happened, I contacted the bank and they've now got their fraud department on it. The good news is that they'll reimburse us all the money. So really, although it's, you know, a bit distressing, it's no biggie. Wrong. It was more than just a bit distressing. And for reasons that Anne was currently ignorant of, it really was a biggie. For not only had I used our savings without telling her, I had also now triggered a full-scale fraud investigation. The amazing thing was that it hadn't even occurred to her that it might have been me that had accessed the money. Anne's innate trust was both moving and humbling. Sadly, it was also horribly misplaced.